Rolling Thunder knelt down close to the head of the snake and held out his hand. The snake coiled and raised its head to meet the hand. His hand and the snake's eyes were only inches apart. They both began to move. When the hand moved forward, the head went back. When the hand withdrew, the head followed. Rolling Thunder bobbed his head and the rattles buzzed. Now he extended both his hands, and the snake swayed slowly between them, first to one side, then to the other. Rolling Thunder and the snake were eye to eye, and I watched, suspended. It was a dance. So it's a different world we live in. A different world, maybe, from any of you have ever known. But it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world where a person can afford to be honest and where a person can afford to live as a brother and a sister. This is Rolling Thunder, Part 6, Medicine Power, the sixth of an eight-part program on the Shoshone medicine man, healer, and activist. After the meeting, I shipped my new camping equipment by Greyhound Freight to Carlin and bought myself a ticket on the Southern Pacific. The train from Oakland to Carlin provided everything anyone could want in a train ride, a winding climb across the Sierra Nevadas with tunnels, bridges, snow-filled forests, trailing off into the steep mountains high above the tracks, and the tracks themselves plummeting into the valleys miles below. The ride lasted 12 hours, and it was dark long before Carlin. I knew this train would pass through our canyon campsite in Palisade, and I hoped to see the campfire from the window. I watched for a long time, but just when I expected to spot the campsite, I was interrupted by a crewman with a lantern. He had a uniform like the conductor's, but the gold letters on his hat spelled brakeman. You're the one for Carlin? Yes. Are we about there? few minutes. Had a guy get off in Carlin just last week. How come you're getting off in Carlin? Well, that's my stop. Need any help with your stuff? No, I just have a couple of small cases. Reason I ask, this ain't no passenger stop, just a service stop. There's no baggage service here. You'll see how we let you out right here in the bushes. Yes, I know, I said. Well, you don't live here, I know that. People were turning in their seats and looking. If you lived here, I'd know you. I lived in Carlin fifteen years. Just moved. Mostly railroad people here. Never seen you on this run before, either. I had no reply. How come you're getting off in Carlin? Well, I'm just visiting here. Who? John Pope. He's an S.P. brakeman. You might know him. I don't want to open this door back here. Step don't go out too good. He walked up the aisle to the front of the car and turned around. I'm going to let you out up front here. You can wait till we stop. Then he walked back and leaned over me. Yeah, I know him, he said. I know him. I stepped out. The air was fresh and cool. The brakeman began efficiently signaling with his lantern. Know where you're going? That's Pope's right over that way. They said they might drive up here, so I thought I'd wait, I said. No, you can't depend on them. You can walk right through the bushes if you ain't scared of getting snake bit. You been here before? Yes, I've been there. I guess I'll walk. You'd best do that. You'd be standing here all night. It's a couple minutes' walk. I started to walk, and the brakeman called after me. Has he been feeding you that big chief bullshit? What? Hasn't he been giving you all that rolling thunder crap? He's not a chief, and that's his name, I said. Assume name, you mean? Nobody's name is Rolling Thunder, he laughed. Well, that's his name, I said softly. I walked a distance and looked back. I could see the brakeman waving his lantern. 
I wanted to shout, Every name's assumed. Where'd you get yours, anyway? Where would an Indian get a name like John Pope? But I turned and kept on walking. Thunder was saying something about how a little rain would be a good idea. There was the sound of thunder directly overhead. Someone down at the Carlson's Market in Carlin had insisted it never rained in the summertime. Yet it had rained on our trip to Ruby Valley, and Rolling Thunder had cheered, Listen to the Rolling Thunder. Rolling Thunder got far ahead of us on the path. When we had nearly reached the road, I saw him kneel beside a small sage bush. Even though he was obviously concentrating intensely, I walked right up and knelt down beside him. Rolling Thunder was holding a tiny stick, and he was poking at an ordinary stink bug. He looked at me, and his face loosened for a moment. This will bring the rain. He herded the big black bug about, tapping on its back to make its run, and on its head to make it turn. Now watch. He quickly flipped the stick... The bug landed on its back, righted itself, and nearly stood on its head with its back end in the air. There was a loud, sharp crack, a bolt of lightning, a bright, clearly defined zigzag line. You see, this brings the lightning. Again and again the act was repeated, and again and again the lightning came. It was unbelievable. I had never seen such lightning. Loud and clear, right overhead, always in the same place, the bolts came in rapid succession. It seemed to be synchronized precisely with the agitations of the bug. I might have been watching someone scratching a screwdriver on a battery pole or touching two live wires together. It became apparent as it continued that this was an uncommon but natural phenomenon produced by a real cause and effect relationship. This brings the lightning. You tease him and it brings the lightning. His irritation stimulates the lightning, and that's what brings the rain. The lightning bolts continued to come one after the other. Rising up on his haunches, Rolling Thunder jumped in a low, crouching stoop, his arm extended to reach the bug with the stick. He continued the pushing and flipping, accompanied now by a throaty cry. Heya, heya! The others had gathered around the little bush, and everyone watched as Rolling Thunder, still stooping, kicked out first one foot and then the other in a sort of dance. He looked pleased, almost mischievous. Now we'd better get out of here, fast. I bet it's really going to come down after all that, I said. Rolling Thunder laughed. It was a wild downpour. We were within sight of the cars when it started, and we all broke into a run. The rain came in heavy sheets and beat furiously on the cars. Driving was nearly impossible. The windshield wipers provided only brief glances at the muddy road. A few minutes later, however, it was all over. The sun shone again, almost as though nothing had happened. 
I could add that I never ran across another stink bug in Nevada before or after that day. The particular agent that was the pre-established requirement, as Spotted Eagle had confirmed the bug to be, had been in the right place at the right time. Now, what modern physics is telling us is that through the sophisticated instruments of modern physics, they're discovering that what we considered impossible ten years ago is possible. Now, it's only possible... Dr. Alberto Violdo, psychologist and author of Realms of Healing. But we forget that our bodies, that every cell in our body is composed of molecules and atoms, and each atom is composed of a nucleus and electrons. There are electrons in every, each and every atom in the body. So that the body really is a quantum physics system. It's perhaps the most sophisticated instrument we have. In effect, it took five billion years to billion years to sophisticate and develop the human nervous system. And if with technology that is only 50 years old, like modern physics technology, we're discovering these very unique things, primitive cultures have been working with technology that is five billion years old, which is the human instrument, the human biocomputer, which is so sophisticated that it can, in effect, align every electron in the body so that simultaneously you can split and be in two places at once so that your consciousness can be somewhere else, for example, obtaining information while you're here mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Your consciousness can actually be in New York picking up information and actually influencing events at a distance. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Modern science says, modern physics says. The shaman has been saying this for countless years. You know, after many years of being fascinated by the type of phenomena that shaman and healers were able to carry out, for example, a friend of ours that we wrote a chapter in the book about, Rolling Thunder, is a Shoshone Indian medicine man. And his name, Rolling Thunder, comes from the fact that he can influence uh, thunder and rain and lightning. And I remember being with him, and we all decided to have a dance. Now, it is customary, before having a dance, for there to be a small shower to sort of pat the dirt down, so it's not very dusty. And after the dance, for there to be a very heavy rainstorm to wash away the tracks, so the white man wouldn't know that the Indians were there. So we... Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that we're right in the middle of a Nevada summer during a very, very dry season, a hand rain in months. And I was keeping my eye on this sneaky shaman because I wanted to see how he was going to pull off two rains in this very dry spell. Somehow, we get to where the dance is going to be, which is an abandoned ranch a few miles out of town. And it's a big bonfire, and just as we're getting there, there's a little black cloud over the dancing area, sprinkling just a small shower to settle the dust. And I'm totally awed and impressed. And after the dance, we finish, we've been dancing to the beat of drums and doing snake dances and various dances. Uh, when we decide to finish, the fire is going out. I look up at the night sky, it's perfectly clear, suddenly out of nowhere, this heavy dark mass collects right on top of where we are and this great thunder shower with lightning breaks and we all have to run to our car. Now if I had told you this and if I were saying that I was the only person who saw it, you would probably think that I was ready for the mental hospital. But this is witnessed by perhaps 30 other people including several very respectable scientists um, besides my co-author. Now, for many years, I was very interested in this phenomena. How could this man make it rain? I was very enthralled by the phenomena. After a, after a number of years, I began to realize that the thing that allowed the phenomena to work was a unique type of thinking. And I became really enthralled by this high-level thinking that these individuals practiced. What are the methods and techniques, I would ask myself, to be able to generate the same phenomena at will. And then I began to study the states of consciousness that they were able to tap into. 
And in these unique states of consciousness, very, very unique abilities became available to the person. They described these states as trance states, saying that the very first thing you need to do is to break out of the cultural trance that we've all been educated into. And then there's a series of trance states that become available to the individual. The first one, I have broken it into three categories. As a psychologist and as a, I'm also from a Western tradition, so I've bridged this into our culture somewhat. The first state of trance is very much like meditation. It consists of quieting or stilling the mind. The second state of trance, the second level, is a level of physiological realignment, where the body realigns itself. We've all heard of rolfing, of deep structural massage, where the structure of the body is changed. Well, this second level of trance produces almost exactly the same results as deep realignment, except that there's nobody working on you, there's nobody realigning you, there's nobody massaging you. It's all happening in a very unique state of trance where the energy fields in your body come into alignment with the energy fields in the earth. And you come perfectly into alignment. And as you're doing that, you, you see that your body begins to move on its own, releasing very old memories from the past that you have stored in your deep muscle tissues. Mm -hmm. And it, as you do that for a number of hours, you clear your body. Your body becomes a perfect channel for energy. And memory begins to be stored and the energy fields outside the body instead of inside the body. Then you go into the third level of trance, which is a clairvoyant level of trance, which is sort of an umbrella level. Here you can tap into higher sources of consciousness and information, come to meet your own guides, uh, be able to uh, influence events at a distance, become telepathic, all these mechanisms become available from this unique level of trance because we're using the potentials of the brain instead of at 10 to 15 percent how we're functioning now we may be using at say 10 percent more increasing the use of our potential slightly so what i became fascinated by was what were the unique states of consciousness that allowed them to do this phenomena up here at a place called esalon up the coast and a nice people up there they always give me a place to stay and something to eat when I'd go by there. So I went by there one time, not about a year ago, and they gave me a room. Uh, me and my warriors, my people that were with me, uh, gave us a room for the night and sent us over to be fed. And uh, very nice. And then we came back and here's some other people what we thought was our room, having their kind of a ceremony, and so uh, we were kind of surprised that uh, we didn't interfere because uh, we don't interfere with other people's way of doing. But we walked away and came back later. But here was our luggage piled over in one corner, all just piled in one corner. And I opened my medicine grip. I knew right immediately somebody had touched my feathers. And I was very angry. Because anger went right through me. I have got a temper. When something's wrong. And a great storm came up that time. You might remember it. Anyway, it blew out the windows up there. It knocked down huge green trees, huge ones. But we got out of there first. Because I went down and talked with the wind. And the storm was already rolling in. But there was another one out there ready to come in. So uh, we could feel the house shake where we were staying. And uh, cliffs are just below there, you know, the high cliffs and the rocks down below. So we packed the fastest we ever packed. And we got out of there. Headed up the coast before we knew there'd be mudslides. And well, knocked down all the phone lines and electric lines and everything. And uh, so when I finally uh, was able to get through to some of our friends down there and uh, they told me what happened, I explained to them what happened to us and what happened to me. And they said, well, they didn't know. Well, that's, a, I suppose, a good excuse. But I'm going to tell you a little more about this thing about respect. If you overcome 
any of into our country, it's a good thing to have your respect with you, and lots of it. During the long ride back home, Rolling Thunder told us the story of the recent Ruby Valley raid, when he and Frank Tamok and some traditional Shoshone put on their so-called war paint and ran a group of hunters off the reservation. I told you about the time, didn't I, that we ran all the drunken deer hunters off the reservation land out here? That event is spoken of as the Ruby Raid. It might be mostly forgotten about now, but it sure was talked about when it happened three years ago. The hunters went back and told the story in the bars, and it was repeated all around the towns of Elko and Ely. It even came out in the local papers, and those hunters who were run off will never forget it. It was the way the whole thing unfolded that made our people so angry, and if you can understand the way it happened and the things that led up to it, you can understand why we did what we did. It was only a few days before the, quotes, raid, that a young buck from the McDermott Reservation was convicted in Winnemucca for shooting a deer out of season. In the first place, our people have been guaranteed the right to hunt food on our own land in our own way. We don't need hunting dates and hunting permits because we don't kill for the fun of it. We hunt and kill animals only when we need to do so to live, to survive. But that's just another broken promise. Now, they say our rights apply only within the reservation boundaries, which they can limit or change around as they see fit. Well, our guaranteed rights apply within the boundaries that are spelled out on our treaties, and that does not mean the reservations. In the second place, that young man killed a deer that had been wounded in the hindquarters and would have died anyway, and he wanted to use it to feed his wife and nine children. His family was starving because he'd been poisoned working for the white man in the mines, and he'd been laid off without any compensation. But he was brought into your courts and fined a hundred dollars, which is a fortune to a man like that. The very next day, the white hunters began coming right up on the reservation and made their camps. They began drinking, like they always do, and shooting at our people in the distance. Even if they claim we look like deer, there's no excuse for shooting at our people. They began killing deer and throwing the carcasses in the dump because they're only interested in contests that give prizes for the biggest trophies. After what happened, we couldn't take it any more. So Oscar Johnny began leading scouting parties to keep an eye on the drunken hunters. One group of whites made their camp right inside the house of one of our Indians. Frank Timok went down there to tell those people that they were trespassing upon an Indian reservation. But they laughed at him and began horsing around, insulting him and trying to make him drink some of their whiskey. Timok is a good and quiet man, but he got angry inside. I was there when he came back and told what had happened, and I could see how he felt. I asked him if he wanted them off the reservation, and he said, I want them off. So the word went out to all our people, and you might have some idea by now about how these things are done. These people have no telephones, and many of them live a long, long ways away, but they came. You might ask how many there were, but we don't say. We know, but we don't say. I can tell you that there were a great many, and most of them remained unseen in the hills. There were enough people for whatever had to be done. Even Oscar Johnny's little niece was there. I objected to some of these people at first, but I was overruled, so I agreed. We didn't take matters into our own hands because we wanted to. We had contacted the Sheriff's Office, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the Department of Fish and Game. They all tried to give us the impression they were looking into the matter and finding that nothing could legally be done. The sheriff's office suggested we might all make a 140-mile trip to an office where we could sign a complaint. If a white man ever called from a reservation to say he was being mistreated by an Indian, the law was always out there in no time, so we knew we were being given the runaround. Chief Tamok gave the word for us to move on the white camps at one minute after sunset. We took them by surprise. There was no violence. Not that time, anyway. The surprise was enough. Our young men were on horseback, and they were painted and wore feathers. We approached a group of whites, and they all stood paralyzed like statues. Tomok and I walked right up to them with a guard on each side. Our young warriors were behind us. Their guns were loaded, and the safeties were off, but they were pointed into the air. We stood watching these men for what seemed like ten or fifteen minutes, and I stared hard into their faces. They could neither move nor speak. Then one of the men started stammering. It was real soft. Jesus Christ, he was saying. 
Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. He was either cussing or praying, I don't know which. Then I saw something I'd never seen before or since. The man right next to me, his mouth started moving. His throat, his lips, his tongue, everything was working just like he was talking, and not a sound came out. It was the strangest thing I ever saw, this guy's mouth moving and no sound coming out, not even a whisper. But then a third man spoke up. He was shaken, but his voice was halfway normal. I'm a deputy sheriff, he said. Then he made a mistake. He made a move for his hip, and our men lowered their sights upon him. Don't you move, I shouted, and he stopped still. Don't you make a move, not even a twitch, or you're done. He was really scared now, and he whimpered something about his deputy sheriff's card. I guess he thought that would save him. Okay, I told him. I'll look at it if you want me to, but it doesn't mean a thing. He said he knew it, but he wanted to show it to me. Our braves held aim on the man. I told him to turn sideways and move one hand to his pocket very, very slowly. So he turned sideways and slowly took out his wallet while our men watched him through their sights. Then he showed me the deputy sheriff's card he carried, and I reminded him again that it didn't mean a thing, that he was on a reservation. I know, he said. I know. I was just wondering where are the boundaries of the reservation. I told him he could just go on wondering about that. There's only one thing you need to know, and I pointed to a little dirt road way off down the hill. You see that road in the distance? Well, if you can get across that road, you and all these drunken hunters, although they somehow seemed to sober up all of a sudden, if you can get across that road, you'll be off the reservation and you'll be safe. But the only way that's going to happen is if you make it across the road in 15 minutes. So they stood there paralyzed, looking at the road way off in the distance. I watched them for a moment, and I told them that the 15 minutes had started when I'd spoken about it. Then I shouted, Move! You should have seen them. They scurried so fast you wouldn't believe it. Within 15 minutes, every single drunken trophy hunter was off the reservation, and they've never been back. tested. It's just like when two medicine men or chiefs meet on the trail. 
We have a certain tobacco we smoke. We don't carry no card, no credentials, nowhere. And we have a smoke, and it's called a chief's tobacco. Don't ask me what it is. I don't even know the English name for you, and I wouldn't tell you if I did. Anyway, three puffs of it'll knock you out cold if you're not qualified to smoke that. So it's a different world we live in. A different world, maybe, from any of you have ever known. But it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world where a person can afford to be honest and where a person can afford to live as a brother and a sister to each other and even to the animals and to all, all mankind. And that's our life. I'll tell you one or two more that uh, our neighbors are a band of coyotes to the north of us. That's our neighbors. You can go 100 miles to the south, 100 miles to the north, and not see anyone where we live. That's how vacant. We live in the most vacant part of this whole land. I think we're kind of fortunate that way. It's a desert, all right. Almost, uh, well, almost desert. We got some sagebrush. But uh, wide open spaces and lots of animals. Now, these animals, these coyotes to the north of us, we got uh, chickens, we got ducks and geese and pigs and all kind of stuff. You know, ordinarily they'd like to bother. They don't bother ours. Not one time. Now, the tame dogs are something different. The coyote's a dog too, you know, but you can't trust the tame ones. We've had several of those killed some of our own animal, and, and some of the poultry. But not the wild ones, because they still have respect. And you can make an agreement with the wild animals even, and live with them. And the snakes, they don't bite none of our people. The tent was down and nearly folded when Rolling Thunder drove into camp with Alice. Spotted Eagle ran back to the main tent to fold up Alice's camp chairs and Coleman's stove. Alice came down the path toward me, walking very fast. I'll have this ready in just a minute, I said. No, wait a minute. I want to tell you something, she puffed. I had the most interesting experience gathering herbs up there, she said, and I'm so anxious to tell you all about it. It couldn't have happened without rolling thunder, I know, but I actually communicated with the bees. I actually talked to them, and they understood. She stopped short. By the way, she said, why didn't you go along? I thought you were going with us. Well, I went with Spotted Eagle. She was thoughtful for a moment, remembering Rolling Thunder's words. Oh, she said, well, let me tell you this. I was told to tell you first. She was excited. Rolling Thunder told me on the way back. He said, now you tell Doug first, and then you write it all down. He said that you should write about the mind and the consciousness things, and that I should write about animals and wildlife. Is that what you're doing? Well, maybe, I guess so, sort of, I answered. Well, you should. Anyway, we went to get whorehound plants up there near the old ranch. Rolling Thunder knew right where they were. He agreed to show me because he knew I needed whorehounds. As soon as I got there, Rolling Thunder made his prayer and his offering. Then I saw that the plants were absolutely covered with bees. I'm deathly afraid of bees. It frightens me just to look at them, and they always sting me. So I just didn't know what to do. I was just ready to leave. Well, Rolling Thunder talked to me. He was so kind and gentle. He sensed what I was feeling without my saying anything. He told me I was really not afraid of animals or any living thing. I only thought I was. And he reminded me how I had always loved animals and had taken care of them on a farm in my childhood. He told me that the fear of any living thing is based on misunderstanding. He said, Now, Alice, I want you to talk to those bees. I saw how you talked to the dogs just a little while ago. You talked to the babies and to the mother, and you said the right things in the right way. If you can talk to dogs that way, you can talk to bees, and they'll understand. They won't understand the English language, but they'll understand your meaning just as you say it. So he told me what to say to the bees. I was supposed to ask the bees to share the plants with me, to tell them I wouldn't harm them, 
and to explain that I needed the plants for good medicine, but I would leave enough for the bees and for seeds for the coming year. He told me to say it loud and clear. He said he would be sitting behind me, and he wanted to be able to hear my voice. I did as he said, and do you know the bees actually understood me, and they moved. I just can't describe how I felt. All the bees on the plant I was looking at moved. They all moved together to the back of the plant. I took only the front half of the plant which they'd left me, and then I moved to another plant covered with bees, and the same thing happened again. On one of the plants, when the bees moved back and I started to cut, they all made the strangest buzzing sound. It felt as though they were somehow speaking, telling me to stop, and I was understanding. I looked at Rolling Thunder, and he said, There now, you see, you and the bees have agreed to share, and now you're cutting back too far. They'll expect you now to do as you said. So I cut only the front half very carefully. Then Rolling Thunder came up to me. She paused, and she appeared to be filled with emotion, and he said that this was a gift of the Great Spirit. Immediately she turned and walked back along the path as quickly as she had come. Next we found wild sunflower plants, and Rolling Thunder wanted to get many leaves. Once again this turned out to be nearly impossible for everyone except Rolling Thunder. He instructed us not to take any leaves occupied by even a single ant, and ants were everywhere. Rolling Thunder was pinching leaves with considerable speed, but we found ourselves slowly and carefully examining every leaf. I tried pushing ants along with the tip of my finger, but they refused to cooperate. If one ran down the stem, two others took its place, or they simply froze, daring me to flick them off in front of Rolling Thunder, custodian of the land, and perhaps of the ants as well. I watched Rolling Thunder and saw that he was simply wiggling his fingers above the leaves with a sort of herding motion while the ants scurried away. He did it again and again. Each time he waved at a leaf, the ants would depart en masse. I saw him point his finger down a stem and move a column of ants as though his finger were a magnet and the ants little particles of iron. I wanted to try this myself, but not where Rolling Thunder could see. I just started toward another sunflower when I saw a rattlesnake. My mouth and eyes sprung open. The snake began to slide, and the rattle almost brushed against my boot. I was about to become either paralyzed or jet-propelled, but instead I became oddly elated. Every time I'd been with Rolling Thunder, up a hill, down a river, into the bushes, or along a road, he had spoken a few protective words in behalf of his respected snakes. Now here was one at last. I believe I might have smiled at the snake, and then at Rolling Thunder. Look at this, I said. Everyone turned. Even the women were calm. Rolling Thunder knelt down close to the head of the snake and held out his hand. The snake coiled and raised its head to meet the hand. His hand and the snake's eyes were only inches apart. They both began to move. When the hand moved forward, the head went back. When the hand withdrew, the head followed. Rolling Thunder bobbed his head, and the rattles buzzed. Now he extended both his hands, and the snake swayed slowly between them, first to one side, then to the other. Rolling Thunder and the snake were eye to eye, and I watched, suspended. It was a dance. Rolling Thunder stopped, and the snake became still, absolutely motionless. Now, he said, watch him go on about his business. He wheeled around on one foot and stood up with his back to the snake. The snake went limp, uncoiled, slid through a drain pipe under the highway, and was gone. No one said a word. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah.
We had two young white fellows from, I think this from San Francisco, and uh, wandered into our camp, and uh, they were making uh, some remarks to some of the other people that uh, they didn't think Rolling Thunder was a medicine man. And uh, they didn't see Rolling Thunder had all that power. And uh, they'd read the Don Juan books, which I think are very good books. And uh, anyway, they hadn't had a quickie mystical experience. So I didn't say anything. Uh, you know, I don't like criticism. Anyone's entitled to believe whatever they want to believe. But we had a meeting out on the land. And uh, they were there, a lot of people were there, around the campfire, and a full moon was coming up that night, around about uh, 10 o'clock. And we had drumming and singing as usual, you know, everything going fine. But just before the moon was supposed to rise, I stopped everything. And I told these, uh, I told the people tonight, I have to go out and talk with our brothers out there and our neighbors, the Kahoots. But I need two volunteers to go with me. How about you and you? Always democratic. And they, they shook their heads up and down. They didn't say nothing, but they shook their heads and uh, volunteered just like that. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See the Adam's apple working up and down, too. Uh, anyway, uh, they did volunteer. I knew they didn't have brave fellows. And uh, might be all right to have along. So I told them I'm going to give you something to smoke and something to drink. And you can see in the dark. And you can travel fast, real fast, just like the coyote. And... Uh, I did. Well, anyway, we started out faster and faster out to the country. The old chief, the coyotes have a tribe and a chief too, you know. And the old one came out, let out a howl. I answered him, told him where he was coming, and liked to come in for a visit, you know. And so we talked back and forth, and uh, then they send out two scouts. They always have two scouts and uh, to guide us in. So I told these fellows, I stopped and told them, I says, now, when we get out there, they're going to have a clearing picked out for the meeting, and they're going to have a meeting just like we do, in the Indian way, a farm a circle all around us. And we're going, I want you to watch me, stay behind me, never take one step ahead of me. And I want you to watch, and do the same thing I do. We're going to lay down flat of our backs and put our hands up in the air, show it to empty. And bar your throat. You bar your throat. And then they're going to come up and inspect you from head to foot, sniff you all over. Don't have no bad vibes. Don't have no fears. Uh, because if you do, uh, you might not be coming back. And, and so 
anyway. Uh, you know, the, some of the fellows from the city, I notice they walk real heavy, make a lot of noise, and they walk. I can walk anywhere and never make a sound if I want. But these fellows uh, come along, clump, 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 making lots of noise right behind me, you know, I can hear them coming. And two dogs, two tame dogs from the camp, they fell in behind them. And they, I had quite a party going out there. And here I was, we were getting closer and closer, and the coyotes would uh, call, and I'd call back to them. And we are getting closer, you know, all the time. But pretty soon I didn't hear the clump clump anymore. And I looked around, and those two fellows had vanished. And uh, uh, went on, and a little later, the dogs had uh, vanished. So everything went off fine anyway. I guess they wasn't, didn't feel it was quite ready yet or something, but I uh, uh, never seen them till the next morning. And I got back to camp, and here they were standing by the campfire just like they'd never lived. And, you know, I, uh, I told them, I says, uh, you fellows come here, you said, to learn. How could I teach you when you already know magic? I never see nobody vanish like that before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, uh, we got a sense of humor too. We like to play tricks on people sometimes. You are, you are, you are, you are, statue, perhaps a yard high, was standing just under the outstretched wings of Rolling Thunder's huge stuffed eagle in the living room. It looked like an oriental image, a Hindu figure, perhaps a bodhisattva, but it was capped with an American Indian headdress of painted feathers. None of us asked about it. While we sat in the chairs in the center of the living room, the statue was against the wall behind us. Rolling Thunder began telling a story of an encounter with a black magician, that had occurred while we were back in Topeka. Saying something about the tools of magic, he nodded toward the strange gray statue. Members of the Grateful Dead Rock group, past and present, were Rolling Thunder's friends. He called them the whole Grateful Dead family. The group maintained a sort of headquarters in San Rafael, and many of the family lived on a ranch in Novato. Just before we left for Topeka, Rolling Thunder got a telegram from the Grateful Dead. I'll get out there as soon as I can get away, he said when the telegram came. Seems they've got some kind of problem, but I can't take off just like that. A second telegram came two weeks later, and he left immediately. I had a feeling I was really needed, he said, so I decided to show up. There was no one there when I got there. The place was abandoned. I didn't know what was going on. Even the growing things were beginning to die. He said he'd searched the house and grounds trying to find some clue. The more he looked around, the more he sensed some strange presence. Well, when I'm in need of help, or when I really need an answer, I sit down and light my pipe and have a smoke, and my answer eventually comes to me. Alone in the ranch house, he sat on the floor in the corner of a room and lit his pipe, prepared to stay for hours until he learned what had befallen his friends. The answer came sooner than expected. A young white man, dressed in a black jacket, flung open the door and stomped into the room. He appeared angry and confused. Then he saw Rolling Thunder sitting in the corner, smoking his pipe. Suddenly, when he saw the Indian with the feather and the pipe, he became enraged. 
He shouted at Rolling Thunder and called him names for interfering with his work. He sat down on the floor next to Rolling Thunder and shouted on and on. He claimed he was powerful and dangerous, and he tried first to make Rolling Thunder afraid and then to make him angry. I just sat there and looked at him, Rolling Thunder told us. I sat there and puffed my pipe and watched him have a fit. I learned everything I wanted to know. Well, it was true that he was a powerful young guy. By that I mean he had learned how to misuse power, and he was willing to do it. He could only use his power to cause trouble. That was the nature of the helpers who associated with him. He had gone to South America and trained with a sorcerer and acquired his powers. He used money for that purpose, and he wanted to get money as a result of it. But what he was really after was glamour. He wanted glory and he wanted fame. When he couldn't get them, he caused trouble. Everyone became sick. The whole place became sick. That was the way I found things there. Of course, now this guy was against me. In his anger, the young man revealed himself. And the angrier he became, the more he revealed. He soon understood who Rolling Thunder was and why he was there. And what followed, Rolling Thunder called a contest of wills. The man was not without means. His hostility was powerful, his will strong, and he carried with him the implements he had learned to use in South America. While he tried to destroy Rolling Thunder with his wrath, Rolling Thunder directed his will against the man's purpose and the instruments of his power. It was an intense and exhausting struggle that had to last until one was defeated. There was a time, Rolling Thunder told us, when he shunned such confrontations, Challenges like this one that were so direct and so decisive, so full of fear, anger, and hostility, seemed best to be avoided. Now he had the competence and confidence of many years of medicine. He had learned the secret of the struggle and could remain above the contest. The man's powers did not touch him. The fear, the anger, and the hostility did not affect him. Like a tuning fork that vibrates sympathetically, or an ear that responds to external sounds with vibrations of its own, the mind hears and responds with its own nature. Rolling Thunder did not receive the man's anger and hostility because he didn't have these things within himself. The man is no longer a black magician, Rolling Thunder said. His powers are gone. He was doing no good with them, not even for himself, and his medicine pouch is at the bottom of the river. That happened while we were sitting in that room. When the man came in, I saw he had dark clothes and a dark atmosphere about him, and he had a medicine pouch on his belt. But right in the middle of his big contest, his medicine pouch disappeared. Then he pretty much knew he'd had it. Rolling Thunder grinned slightly and then feigned bewilderment. Isn't that funny? I was only sitting there listening to the man's abuse and his medicine pouch simply disappeared and somehow ended up over in the river that runs near the ranch house. That medicine pouch lies on the bottom of the river. Well, those things can be done. It's there today, anybody can see it, and that's where it's going to stay. I relieved him of his other instruments, too. He made another quick gesture toward the statue. His tools of magic, I liberated these things. Oh, yeah.
said, things happened all the time that would be pretty strange to see today. Our grandfathers used to tell of big gatherings, council meetings, and festivals when they were kids, when chiefs and medicine men would get together and play around a bit. Of course, I've always said the powers are not to be misused. They're not for personal use or for show. But long ago, when there wasn't the competition and confusion that there is today, the old chiefs and medicine men used to have a little fun just among themselves. Some old chief, for example, might take a stick or something and throw it over into a bush, and then he'd bet the others they weren't sharp enough to see which bush it had landed in. Of course, someone would go look, and it would be gone, or way over in some other bush. He'd keep throwing things into the bushes, and no one would find them. He'd be moving them, see? And then some old medicine man would come up and play dumb. He'd say he figured he had pretty sharp eyes. And the chief would throw a stone way off in some bush. It would land somewhere in the distance, and then right away he'd move it from that spot. The old man would run out there while all the others laughed, but the old man would be moving the stone as he ran right back to where it landed. Then he'd come back with the stone and all the sticks and everything that had been thrown into the bushes, exclaiming they'd all landed in the same spot, and everyone would roll with laughter. Of course, it was all kind of a game they were putting on, kind of like keeping in shape. have heard Rolling Thunder, Part 6, Medicine Power, the sixth of an eight-part program on the Shoshone medicine man, healer, and activist. Selections from the book Rolling Thunder by Doug Boyd were read by Mitchell Harding. Music by the Cheyenne Dave Group with T. Knight Walker and the White Skunk Sisters, Burt Red, Mrs. Burt Red, Eddie Box, and James Mills, Rough Arrow and the Phoenix Plains Singers, Dan Thomas and Paul Martin, and the Little Axe Singers. Technical and production assistance by Margaret Fowler, Mitchell Harding, Judy Walker, and Amanda Folger. This program was produced by Roy E. Tuckman for Pacifica Radio, KPFK in Los Angeles. Hey, hey, hey.